Well, good morning, everybody. It's such a joy and an honor to have you with us this morning. Uh, my name is Peter Botros. As I said, if you're new with us or if you've just come to support uh, Jess and Marek today, thanks so much. It's our joy and pleasure to honor you and to welcome you in this church family this morning. Well, we're in the middle of a series known as The Adventure. And the Adventure series is basically looking at a life of an ancient person that we know through the ancient writing of the Scripture in a book known as the Book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a real person that existed in what we know as the post-exilic community. He was brought up in captivity after the people of God lived such a disobedient life that the Lord have taken them on a seven-year captivity out of their homeland into Babylon. And whilst they stayed in Babylon for a while, uh, God sent a guy called Cyrus, and this particular person was so uh, motivated by God to release and relieve uh, God's uh, people to go back to their own country and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild uh, their environment. They spent several years there, and, uh, and they didn't really build the temple for a while, but God motivated someone to come back, and through the ministry of a prophet named Haggai, he motivated them and challenged them and convicted them that they shouldn't keep building their own homes whilst the temple of God remains in ruin. They built the temple, but uh, they left the walls of Jerusalem unprotected and unrestored. So the walls have been burned down and, uh, and they had no protection, no national identity. And the temple of God remained open for uh, people to come in and steal stuff and destroy it. They were in an environment where economically they were under such an immense amount of pressure from the neighbors that could come and invade their land at any given moment. And when uh, Nehemiah, back in captivity in Babylon, he was working as an esteemed person in the palace. It was almost like the confidante, the king, the cupbearer that the king trusted with his life, literally. Uh, when he heard about the news that, uh, that Jerusalem was in ruin and the walls were down and, and people were disgraced to their God and they weren't living the vision that God had for them, he wept so deeply. And it released him from living a life for himself. He decided he's going to be freed from selfish living and go back 700 to 1,000 miles to Jerusalem, away from the comfort and the luxury of his role and his palace. He recognized that God's purpose, God's purpose for his life is beyond his man-made palace. God's purpose for his life existed beyond his man-made palace. He knew that he had to sacrifice to see what God had intended for his people, not merely to rebuild the walls. Far more than that, he wanted God's people to be the light to the world that they were intended to be. Since Abraham, their forefather, God asked that they would be so close to him that they may be blessed and be a blessing to the nations. God wanted, dreamt of them to become such a light to the world that eventually the Savior would come and would ab absolutely turn their eternities upside down. But they weren't living that life. And somebody had to do something. He realized that they've been for at least 100 years back 
in Jerusalem and nobody wanted to do something to see the vision that God had already said years ago come to pass. And something happened, the tension rose in him to do something about it rather than say, rather than say someone else would do something about it. And that's what vision is. I, as I told you, I was reading Andy Stanley's book, The Visioneering Book, uh, back in, in the time of my holiday in January, and it grabbed my heart, this little statement he made, makes about vision. He says, a vision is born, a vision is born in the soul of a man or a woman who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. The tension between what is and what could be. And all of us have experienced this tension somewhere in our lives. All of us experience the tension of seeing something that's there and, and, and we envision what it could be, but we don't know what to do. It's bigger than what we can do. For example, our kids living a particular lifestyle and will say, we, they could live life differently. We know what it would look like. There is tension between what it is and what could be, but we don't know what to do. We can't do it on our own. It may be something in your work environment. It might be something in your community. It might be something in your neighborhood. You know that there is tension, that it shouldn't just uh, look, uh, somebody will, will do something about it. You feel like this should happen and should happen quickly. But we know that God's vision, sometimes it doesn't come with a manual. Sometimes it doesn't come easily to us. I shared with you a little while ago, a little while ago, I shared with you about the idea of God giving me a vision for the future. We were part of a, a, conservative, a conservative traditional church, and people were religious. They came to church every week. They participated in some ministries. They gave lavishly and sacrificially for the church, but they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. They did not believe that you can be saved by grace and you have an interaction, a personal interaction with God's Spirit that changes your life. In 1996, God gave me a vision that my life will be spent ministering to people full-time to help them come to know Jesus and live with Him. And it was a, a group of six of us who were fully committed to see God do some wonders in our midst. But several years have gone past and things got from bad to worse. To the extent that around 1999 and around the year 2000, the, 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 the opportunity to actually minister became extremely improbable. They kicked us out of that church that we lived our entire life in. They felt we were uh, b uh, pr predominantly unorthodox in our teaching, that we were more of an evangelical uh, background. And eventually we left and we didn't know what to do. We were not allowed to come to the church. So we had a group of people, six or seven people, in our, uh, in our lounge room and in different lounge rooms that spent time together reading the Word of God and dreaming of the day where we can be used together to make a difference in our community and way beyond that in our city and beyond. And in fact, God did some wonderful things that in the first several months we grew beyond measure that we had to get a community hall in the inner suburbs, uh, northern suburbs of Melbourne. And we were in a, uh, in a, in a pretty run-down uh, hall 
uh, a, a community hall and would have a, uh, if you like, an evangelistic type of, of, of a meeting every Saturday night. I preached one night and my friend Raph preached a night, another night. And on, on the alternative weeks, alternate weeks, I would look after the kids. You have to feel sorry for the kids. Um, and he, on the alternate week, he would look after the kids. But then, as we were working together as a team, God has really put it in our hearts that we can do more than that. Not merely impact our local community, but we can reach out beyond that into our city. And what we did was, was, was pretty ridiculous. We didn't have a lot of money. None of us were working full time for this new church plant thing. And uh, uh, we, we found some designers that put ridiculous, beautifully looking designs. We put them in all the trams around the inner city suburbs and particularly the northern suburbs of the city. And we went uh, uh, and, and were able to negotiate a right to do a weekly program in channels 31. So after a long day of fasting on Saturday and we do our meeting, we clean up. Uh, you know, the place was to be so dirty. We clean it better than we've received it. And by about 11 o'clock at night, Raph would preach to the camera. And I would basically film him and spend several hours trying during the week trying to edit uh, the, the video and put the scriptures and make it really uh, a professionally looking type of video so it can air on channel 31. And it aired at a, at a good time. And, and, and in the first few weeks and maybe the couple of months, I was so fired up. I was thinking, you know, this is awesome, God. You took us out so you can do something amazing in that. But we didn't see great results. More than that, I was uh, studying uh, a little bit of theology. At the same time, I was finishing my master's in education. I was working as a teacher full time, and I had a family, and I, and I ministered and preached every second week. You can imagine what started happening in my mind, thinking, why on earth am I lumped with the load of filming and editing this program that is doing literally nothing that we can see. I was busy. I had other priorities. I needed to study. I needed to look after the family. I needed to look after my own job. And how come nobody else is working as hard as I am working? And I started thinking, maybe it's not fair. Maybe I shouldn't really be participating in this environment. Somebody else can put their hand. But nobody else could film. Nobody else could edit. But also, I knew that I had a different role. I knew that God has called me in 1996 with the vision of preaching and teaching and ministering. And even if that wasn't going to happen, well, I was a teacher. I was a teacher that was supposed to teach and excel in, in, in the stuff that I was doing over and above my current teaching position. But deep inside, there was also something that was motivating me. In the, in the surface, it said, well, we're not, it's a lot of money that we're spending. It's a lot of hours that we're investing, and we're not seeing great results. But the truth is, deep inside me, there was something saying, they living their destiny. they living their vision. This is not my vision. Why should I sacrifice for it? Why should I sacrifice for someone else's vision? And maybe you look at me saying, that's a little bit too out there, Peter. That's a bit wicked. How come you're, you're not selfless and willing to do the hard yards? Well, you probably know people just like me who encountered an environment where they were given a vision 
Something between what could be and should be and between the reality of their current, their current circumstances. And maybe they were called upon by others to establish that, uh, that, that workforce and that team to do something and to build something together that they can't build alone. But you've noticed one of three reactions that they may have had. Rightly so, some of them may have been disinterested. Why have they been disinterested? Because of their priority. Just like me, they may have had studies and work and family. And, and when you come with a vision, they're thinking, what on earth? I can't fit that in my schedule. They have different priorities. Maybe you've seen others who have been disengaged. They maybe have the time, but they have other visions and other hopes and other dreams for their lives, and they don't want to be interrupted by your little dream or, or a team that's going to suck the life out of their vision. Or maybe, just maybe, you don't see it necessarily in the mirror, but you probably see it in other people. When you look at others who are unwilling to participate in a team, and really the motivation is they didn't come up with the idea. And there is a power struggle. Regardless of what happens, all of us have seen it is hard. It is hard to bring people to participate in a team to do something profound, but we can't do anything on our own. So how did Nehemiah make something out of nothing? How did Nehemiah establish a team that were willing to do the hard yards after he came all the way from, uh, from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem how did he do that? How did he establish a team? Well, he probably spent about three days investigating the environment. He knew the difficulty of building the walls of Jerusalem, but he wanted to see it himself. So at night, he would go around out without telling anybody what he's going to do, and he tried his best to build and rebuild uh, that understanding of what God wanted him to do. For Jerusalem. And then he met with the people three days later, and this is what it tells us in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. It says this Then I said to them, to a team, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us brainstorm a vision for our future as God's people. That's what he did. He came to the people and said, let's gather together, get our best ideas together so that we can realize what God wants us to do. Right? Wrong. He didn't. I made that up. He didn't ask anybody for a brainstorming ideas because I want to tell you, regardless of your culture and your religious background, when God gives a vision, He never gives it to a committee. He never gives a vision. You tell me a single character in the scripture that was given a vision in a committee. God gives a vision to a person. God gave a vision to Abraham. God gave a vision to Moses. God gave a vision to David. God gave a vision to Nehemiah. God never waits for brainstorming ideas of people to say, Oh, this is what we should do. You know why? I tell you why. Because this is what Andy Stanley says about this group of people. He says, the people living in Jerusalem had grown so accustomed to the fact that the walls were torn down 
that they hardly noticed anymore. They had ceased to be concerned. They had learned to live with it. Vision casting, Andy Stanley says, will always include an element of waking people out of their apathy. Friends, the reason sometimes we, wa- we don't want to participate in God's vision for a team is because you feel you did not come up with it. Neither did the people of Nehemiah's days. And the reason why? Because they did not have God's heart for what they were meant to do. God does not always work with consensus, but he works with confirmation. He shares the vision, and that's what Nehemiah did. He shared the vision and said to them, Come. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And the word disgrace is basically reproach, embarrassment, and it wasn't just about the land and their national identity and their security. It was about the embarrassment of not living the vision that God gave Abraham these centuries ago. They, weren't no, they were no longer being light in the world and they were okay about it. They no longer, they ceased to be concerned not only about their wall, they ceased to be concerned about their life. They ceased to be concerned about being the people of God. They ceased to be concerned about living life for God and for Him alone. And friends, you and I experience the same thing. You and I experience the same thing like the people of Nehemiah at times. But to their credit, look at what happened. Nehemiah declared to them the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. And look at them. They said, let us start rebuilding. They didn't say, it's a great idea, let's think about it. Tell us all the hows of how we can do it. Oh, it's too hard to do. We don't have enough. We've tried. We've been here for 100 years, Nehemiah. Get out of this. They said, forget about the house. Let's start rebuilding. Let's go back to the vision that God has for us as a nation, as a group of people. Let's start rebuilding. Forget whose idea it is. Let's see if it's God's idea. How did that happen? God. God had called Nehemiah to do something, and he will bring the right people alongside him. I want to tell you something. The following couple of verses, Nehemiah says to a couple of people, you have no right to build with us. He didn't say anybody that wants to build come alongside us. He had discernment or who is God calling to build with him. He says, the God of heaven will give us, will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in, in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. He said, no, we have a group of people that will commit to that vision because God put it in their heart. And Jesus has a vision for his church. Just like Abraham was given a vision for us to be the light 
of the nation, the blessing for the rest of the nations. Jesus did not abolish that. He just reinterpreted that. And this is what he said to his followers just before he left. This is his vision statement. This is his purpose. This is his mission for the church. And he says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. In that one sentence, he's saying this is the scope of your of, of, of your vision. This is what you're meant to live for. As you are going, basically the phrase means as you are going, make disciples. That's the only verb, the command to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here is the second component, not merely so that they can be converts, but so they can be disciples. He says, teach these new disciples to obey, not to know, not to attend church, not to do activities, not to be the chair uh, 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 arm expert, but to obey, to live the life that Christ came and died and rose again for you and I to live. The life of Jesus is what you and I are called to live and what you and I are called to impart onto others. Friends, Christianity is not about converts coming to know a set of beliefs or about, hey, don't be upset with me, but Christianity is not about a church growing bigger. It's not about making buildings and bums on seats and, and budgets. It's far beyond that. We have mixed business with church. We have mixed what we want and what our egos want with what God wants. God wants one thing, one heart at a time, one life at a time, one member at a time to come to receive Jesus and to reveal Jesus. He wants people to be Christ-like in their home, in their, in their family environment, in their work environment, in their neighborhood. You know what? It's so easy to come up with every other vision under the sun because this is too hard to accomplish, to have people living like Jesus in the world. But that's the command we have. That's God's dream before the world began. He said, those whom he predicted destined he wanted them to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus any other Christianity any other vision anything about prosperity and vending machine God is not biblical God wants you to die to self so that Jesus can be revealed through you and you can argue it in whichever way you want but God's intention for you and God's intention for me is that you become more like Jesus nothing more and nothing less that you will die to self so that Jesus can be manifested in your life and you know what when you look at somebody that lives like Jesus, when you look at somebody that is selfless like Jesus, when you look at somebody that is wise like Jesus, when you look at somebody that is caring like Jesus, you want to marry that person. Hopefully you're not married yet, but you want to marry that person. You want to work for that boss. You want to partner with that business person. Imagine if there is more little Jesus in the world, but imagine if you had a chance to help people become like Jesus. Imagine that vision that Jesus gave us. I will live under to help people around me and beyond me come to live for Jesus and be like Jesus. Not merely to be converts, not merely to become people who know skills and ideas about Christianity, but people who live for Jesus. Look what Andy Stanley said, just in case you think I'm crazy and make it all up. Look what he says. He says, when we see in others what little of Jesus has already begun to form beneath the insecurity, fear, and pride. When you begin to see beneath what's the surface, the little of Jesus that in people around us, 
when we long beyond anything, when we long beyond anything else to see that little bit of Jesus develop and mature, that is what discipleship is about. Helping that little bit of Jesus in the people around you to mature and develop. Then something is released from within us. That's when you work, help others. Something gets released from within us that has the power to form more of Jesus within them. Oh my goodness. If only we remember that. That you have the capacity to help people, not merely to receive Jesus, but to reveal Jesus in their life. But it would cost you. And it will cost you your life because nobody's going to like you. People are going to ridicule you. People are going to test your motive. People are going to sabotage your reputation. People are going to oppose you behind your back because they can't oppose you in front of you. Because what are they going to say? We don't want to be more like Jesus. You kidding me? The power is the life of Christ carried into another soul across the bridge of our vision for them. A life that touches the life in another with nourishing power. I don't know about you, but I want to give my life for that. I want to give my energy. I want to give my money. I want to give my time. I don't want to do Christianity. I want to see people live like Jesus. And if there is anything that you and I can do to help a little bit of the Jesus that's inside of them be manifested in them and be formed and developed and mature, what a beautiful life. What a beautiful life that's worth living and dying for. I pray that you would become a person that takes the vision of Jesus seriously. Forget this church. Maybe you're not even part of this church. Maybe you don't like being the vision of the church or the dream of the church or this whole concept that we're together here to do something in the community. But in your own life, why don't you commit in your own environment to help people become more like Jesus, to come to receive him and to reveal him? What type of life would that be like? What type of life? Let me tell you about the people that rose with Nehemiah. They had the same difficulties that you and I may be encountering right now. Look at what it says. It says, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. If you have... If you've grown up in a church or you've heard anything about the Jewish culture, the high priest was the most esteemed guy in the Jewish culture. In fact, he was like the top thing. It's like a pipe in a Catholic church. And they were the ones that would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And, and, and they just had such a connection with God. They had the spiritual vision and the direction. They, they were the people that did the hard works in the temple. But what did they do? They rebuilt the sheep gate. They rebuilt the wall that God has given, the vision that God gave Nehemiah. They didn't say, hey, that's not my role, brother. I am bigger than that. Do you know who I am? I'm bigger than that. I have been given far greater role by God. I've been given far greater vision by God. What are you talking about? Your little itsy-bitsy walls, that's too, you know, that's silly. That's not something for a man of my caliber or standing or position. I'm too big for that. You know, he was the grandson of Joshua, the high priest that came in the days of Zerubbabel, the first retainees, the first people that returned to Jerusalem. You know what he could have said? Nehemiah, brother, let, let, let me give you just a little spiritual lesson. You're the new baby. 
You're, you're the newcomer. I have been here with my grandfather. We've been here forever and a day. We came first time around. You were lagging behind. You stayed in Babylon for your own comfort. You stayed in Babylon for your own money. You stayed in Babylon for your own leisure. But we came and paid the price. Don't come and tell me what I should do. It didn't do that. Because all divinely, as, as Andy says, all divinely inspired visions are in some way tied into God's master plan. What is your vision like? Forget merely your role. But is your vision tied to the master plan of God of making disciples everywhere we go? Is that your vision? The second thing, the, the, the second group of people said, this, these people could have been disengaged. The high priest could have been disengaged. He said, you know, I've got other preferences. I've got other roles. I've got other visions. Don't, don't, don't bother me. But they didn't do that. In humility, they collaborated with what God was saying need to be done now. The second group of people are different people. It says next, he was talking about all those, chapter 3 of Nehemiah's, all names of people participated on the team. The next session was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisor. It is the only place in the entire chapter that speaks of people who were meant to help and participate who refused to do so. And guess why? Why did they refuse to do so? You could read it like anybody could read it. It's so obvious. It's blaring obvious. It says they were nobles. They were of high standing and they did not want to put their shoulders to the work. It's a power thing. It says we're nobles. We're not going to work underneath others. We're not going to do this trivial task and other people be our supervisors. What are you talking about? We're the supervisors. We're the top of the tree. What are you talking about? You're going to get me somebody else that is not as good as me, that is not as capable as me to be a supervisor? They could have very easily humbled themselves and did the work, but they were disturbed. Look at the contrast between that and verse 12. And I don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it for you. It says this, Shalom, son of Halohish, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem. Can you believe that? A guy who was a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem is a big deal. He's a top shot. He was the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. Look at what it says. He repaired the next section. He didn't become like the noble says, no, we're not going to work. He put his hand to the work. He put his shoulder to the work. And look at that. With the help of his daughters. With the help of his daughters. In those days, daughters or women didn't really stand to build the walls. Most uh, Hebrew scholars would say that it referred to the villagers that he was in responsible for. You know what he did? He went and got those people who worked under him and says, come with me. He used his influence to fulfill the vision that God has for Nehemiah and for the people of God, the very vision that God gave Abraham this years ago, this many years ago. He used his influence not to say, hey, I've got my thing, you've got your thing, so good luck to you. I've got influence, I'll bring you down. He says, I'm going to use my influence for the, for the greater purpose of God's work. Not to ruin God's work. Look at the last group of people that I want to mention to you. It says, Oziel, son of Harhaya. My goodness, one of those names. One of the goldsmiths 
repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Why is this group of people mentioned? And there is also a merchant or business people mentioned later on. Why is those specific people mentioned? The reality is they had a very lucrative type of industry. They could have said, you know, every day I'm going to spend on the wall, I'm going to lose such and such amount of money. I'm not going to sacrifice what I'm earning for the sake of this wall thing that you're talking about. And imagine if it doesn't even work. So I've lost everything. Here is some people who put down their interests and priorities and lucrative deals and what they had that they could really brag about. And they said, we're going to put our hands together and do something for God. We will sacrifice. Look at what Andy Stanley says. He says, if God has birthed a vision in your heart, the day will come when you will be called upon to make sacrifice to achieve it. And you will have to make the sacrifice, and I love this, with no guarantee of success. With no guarantee of success. God is asking you and I today, will we participate in His plan and His mission at home, in our workplace, and in our neighborhood? Would you give your life for the vision of Jesus to help people receive Him and reveal Him? Or will you do life in the palace as you wish? You're welcome to do that. You're still a follower of Jesus, but you haven't discovered your purpose yet. You will live and God would save you. But the reality, you'll miss out on the adventure that God has for you. You may live life disinterested and disengaged or even disgruntled or disturbed by the vision that others are living out around you. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Friends, in 2003, 2002, 2003, I struggled. I struggled with the fact that I will be behind the camera and edit for few. Uh, I wasn't a good editor, so it took me a couple of days to do that. And I got to the city to give it to Channel 31, and we had to sacrifice money to pay for that. And and it's just my ego was playing up. And I was that close from quitting when God said to me, if you cannot work selflessly for the vision that I've given someone else, you will never see your own. And Susie's my witness. That time I continued to work full time and study. I studied twice, I studied two courses, look after the family and minister on a, on a couple of weekly uh, basis and filmed every single week and edited every single week. Do you think God rewarded me? No. I got nothing out of it. I did pass my studies, thank God for that. But I got nothing out of it. I had given up on the dreams, were given such prophetic words over Susie and I in 2003, and, and I had to let go of all of that, all the promises. And I said, that's it. I'll just be what you want me to, to, to be. I'll do whatever opportunities you give me. Even if it's nothing, I will live for you. I will honor you. I will serve you until 2013, 2012, 2013. That is, that is 
literally about 10 years or so, 9 or 10 years from that time, I decided to continue to film and edit and help out. I had a conversation with an organization in the U.S. that said, would you be willing, would you be willing to do a half-weekly TV program for 30 minutes? That's exactly what we had to do in 2003. It was only 26 minutes, so I got an extra four minutes. And the reality is I've never filmed it and I never edited it since 2013 or 2012. And today is the first day we're filming for that program here in the morning. And the reality is this. If you live for God's vision for someone else, if you live for the collaborative vision that God has for his people, the day will come when God says, I'll start using you. You're nothing but I'll start using you. Not because you're capable, but because I'm capable. And the day will come that the dreams and the visions that God has given you will be implemented if they God honor it. But only, only if you learn how to build in a team. Only if you learn how to sacrifice so that others could build something greater than what you could do alone. So today, friends, I'm going to ask you to participate. We have three different opportunities that we usually have in the church, three big things that we do in the church. We want to help people discover Jesus. We want to help people develop in Jesus. And we want to help people disciple in Jesus. That's the pattern of Paul in Acts chapter 14. But one thing that I want to bring to your attention today is in the area of discovering Jesus. In just a few seconds, Ebony is going to come to the front. She's the our kids' church pastor. And she's going to share with you an opportunity that we have this year. And I'd love you to consider with God if you're willing to give of your time, to give of your energy for that. Over the next few months, we... We're going to speak with you about participating, actually on the 4th of March, participating in the ministries of the church. Don't be a spectator. Don't be sitting down or, or, or just being an expert that tell people what to do. Be a participator with gatherings, connect group gatherings or ministry groups or, or mentoring opportunities. And in term two, we're going to begin the pathways, the discipleship pathways to help you develop how to teach others and how to disciple others. But today, I want to give a few minutes where Ebony will be able to share with us a great initiative. It's one of many that God is doing in our church in this current time so that we can reach out to the lost in our community. Would you welcome, please, Pastor Ebony. Hi, I'm just coming up just to share something I'm really excited about that um, the TAG kids are going to try and get involved in this year. Um, so this year we're trying to get involved in a program called Kids Hope, Oz. Um, some of you may have heard it before. For those who haven't, it's basically a primary school um, early intervention program where uh, one church connects with one school and they provide volunteers and uh, who can go in and actually mentor children in the school. Children that might be at risk of maybe... Um, 
you know, need a little bit of help or might lack confidence or might have some troubles at home, just to give them a bit more support that they might actually need. Um, so we're hoping that we can get involved in this with a local school. So how does Kids Hope work? Basically, it's one church with one school for one hour every week with one child. So we try and get some volunteers up and then the school puts some kids forward that they think would benefit from the program uh, and we match you up with it and, yeah, you just get to really just support a child and meet their needs and it's a really practical way of being able to show God's love into the community. This program isn't about bringing um, the gospel to schools. Uh, unfortunately, because of a lot of factors, we can't actually talk to the kids about God in this program just because schools and all of that gets a bit hard with churches. But it is a way that we can go in and we can actually be Christ in the community. We can actually go and show them you know, who we are and who God is through our actions, not necessarily through the talk. Um, so... How can I get involved? I hope that kind of gave you a bit of a summary. If you do want more information, do come out and see me. But we basically, we need two things to get this program started. First of all, we need a school. If you know anyone who would be willing to get us connected with a school, or maybe you are connected with the school that you think would love this um, program in there, could you come and talk to me? Because we, we're praying at the moment that God would open up a way that we can you know, have a nice transition into a school and just to get connection going. So if you know anyone or you're connected, please come and talk to me so we can start getting some connections going. Second thing is, we need volunteers to do this program. So this basically, if you're a volunteer, it would mean one hour a week during the school time, uh, during the school day, out there just connecting with kids. That might sound scary, but a lot of the time it's just playing ball games with them or colouring in or Lego. Like, I don't know about you, but that sounds fun to me. I'd do that for an hour. Um, but yeah, so it's basically just going and just supporting them with whatever they need, learning what their interests are. Um, so if that's something that you think, man, that would actually be a lot of fun and it'd be really awesome to do, come and talk to me as well because we need volunteers to do this. Um, you might be wondering why this program and why we need to do this. I actually believe that Kids Hope is a really awesome way of being able to connect with the community and provide support to them, which is a massive thing that the church wants to be in the community and helping wherever we can. This is a way that we get to do it with primary age kids and to just really help them as we can. And I was actually talking to the um, big coordinator the other day who runs the whole program, and the stories that come out of it are absolutely incredible. Ones where not even just the kids, but the principal's a bit, oh, don't know about this. And then within two years, they're going around saying, man, I had Christianity completely wrong. I had no idea churches were like this, and just changing their perceptions. Or even ones where there's um, schools who put out on their, uh, their boards outside saying, we love our um, Kids Hope mentors in our local church, because they just know the impact it has on the kids and knows the impact it has on the families as well. So if you want any more information or you'd love to get involved, please, I'll be outside just probably near the Hello Desk. Come and talk to me because I'd be really interested to, yeah, just be able to talk to you if you're interested because it's something I'm really excited about and I hope some other people out here are excited about it as well. Thank you so much, Ebony. That's, that's absolutely awesome and we're so grateful for the effort and the energy that you've put to make this uh, come together. Friends. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you've come here today and you're wondering, what is this whole thing about participating with others on the team to, to lavish the vision and to promote a vision of Jesus-like Christianity? And you haven't even come to know Jesus yet. Today I want to invite you. It is an opportune time that you would say, God, I... I've been doing life alone and I've been in the palace hoping that I'll be satisfied with my dreams. But today I want to come to my God-given purpose. I want to come to be forgiven of my sin 
I want to come to a new relationship of intimacy with you. I want to come to love and honor you. I want to come and know what it like, what life is like to be close to a God that supposedly is personal and caring and wise and powerful. I want to come to you today. And if that's you after the song today, we, why don't you make that declaration in your heart, make that desire known to God. God is so near to us. His spirit is right here. He says, if two or three people gather in my name, I'm near in the midst of them. And God would hear you. For the rest of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, I want you just during this song, just during this song to hear God calling your name. Calling you by name and saying, how are you helping with my vision of turning the world upside down through Jesus' life, disciples? How are you participating in that? Because you can be in a palace and a Christian or you can live the adventure of participating God's heart and purpose for you. Please let's be upstanding as we sing our last song.